0: Hi, I'm Haley. Hi, I'm Sydney. And this week's episode called Getting Down and Dirty is to die for. Okay, Haley, I got some some interesting news for this fine Thursday. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> um, if you know me, I like a good uh cryptid story or related supernatural things. Uh so this is a fun one. Um, I've seen a couple articles this week titled Harvard Scientists Trawling Ocean Floor for Possible Alien Spacecraft. Dun dun dun. Yeah, so basically. Um, there's this guy named um, Avi Loeb. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Um, he's Harvard's astronomer or Harvard's resident UFO hunter. And he thinks that he and his team may have recovered tiny fragments of an interstellar visitor at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. So it sounds like this is an alien uh, meteor. And they've sampled this using an interstellar hook, which is like a tentacle contraption that he invented. And it basically scrapes the bottom of the ocean floor to rake up potential interstellar rock samples. So this um, artifact or alien meteor, he thinks it could belong to an extraterrestrial civilization. So basically, they think it is from... of our solar system because of these tiny spherical fragments they found in the dirt and they're made up of a strange mix of iron magnesium and titanium and apparently this mixture and the proportion of those different elements is kind of odd for on earth so they think that this means that the meteor uh, that they found is a good candidate for having interstellar origins so, oh. yeah, there's your, your fun little UFO
1: story for the week. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so besides news of the ocean, how is how is Sydney? What is Sydney up to? Oh, man. I have officially
0: moved twice in the past month. Uh, getting ready to move for the third time, driving everything back home, uh, Florida to New York, but hitting some national parks on the way back, which I'm super excited to uh, take pictures and share everything from those travels. Um, but yeah, moving all of my stuff back to New York and then preparing to leave for Australia in like a month and a half. Uh, to start my PhD, but yeah, officially done working at Harbor Branch right now and have a little bit of time off in between my stints. <laughs> yeah.
1: Nice. That's awesome.
0: How have you been? I know you're finally on Little Cayman. We're uh, doing virtual interviews now.
1: Yeah. Virtual interviews. It's, um, it's different. I'll tell you that much um, especially with remote field station wifi. Um, so we are learning every day. Um, but it has been very beautiful. Um, I've been surprised that it doesn't feel as small as it is because yeah. everybody is so close knit and like tight with each other that you still have like a fairly large group of people who you're, like close with which is really nice um and I've also been really excited just by like how supportive people are here um it's like very it's a cultural like thing that everybody waves at you as you drive down the street and like there's all these um like I feel like it's easier to form a, a more unified cultural identity here because people to have to integrate opinions of, you know so um, people all uniformly care for the iguanas that are endemic here and people uniformly care for the ocean environment um, just because the people here are so directly tied to it. The um, beautiful and yeah, it's it's only been 10 days, not six months, but we'll see.'ll it'll, it'll yeah. uh, evolve, I'm sure. No, that's so exciting. I definitely loved
0: all the people there and that sense of community. It was such a special place to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Cool. Um, well, on to this week's mucky, dirty, disgusting, just kidding. <laughs> Crazy smart interview with some really cool scientists. <laughs> If you guys want to introduce yourself um and let me know who you are and what you do.
2: Yeah, so um I'm Owen. I'm in the geochemical sensing lab at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. I'm a master's of science and oceanography, marine science and oceanography student uh in my first and a half year. Yeah. Uh, my name is Mason. I also
3: am a master's student in the marine science and oceanography program at Harbor Branch. Owen and I are very close colleagues. Um, I am going into my third year and I hate to say that of my master's program but we're busy busy guys and we got a lot of projects going on but, it, but it's it's great. Um,
1: awesome. I will say of most of the master's students I know I think you guys are some of the most involved. Y'all do so many things outside of just like your specific research project. Um, So three years, like no surprise. You guys do so much, so many great things. Um, And you guys have both accomplished so much for your resumes and for your like science careers in that time. So crazy, crazy research.
3: (laughs) I'd rather have all these extra experiences and take a little bit longer for my degree program than have nothing and just the degree, you know.
2: For yeah, sure. the experiences are definitely super worth it. Um, I think that it's something that you can bring back at like any point in your career. And I kind of I feel like we also you work a lot with our hands in our in our lab, so we do a lot of hands on and technological stuff. So like I just have a lot more life skills now. You know how to better cut wood and build things, and yeah, things that you you don't typically think about as a sign like of a scientist doing. Uh, we get a lot of hands-on training.
0: Yeah, yes. we always talk about that in the podcast. How it's good to be a generalist and know all these weird tips and tricks and different hobbies, uh, along with being a scientist.
2: Yeah, I mean that was like one of the first things I feel I noticed because I did a lot of research as an undergraduate, and just the reliance of on PVC and zip ties and on like all these like your like fastening things and. You gotta just know so much as a marine scientist. It's such an interdisciplinary field between statistics. I mean, like freaking statistics. Um, it's on top of knowing the ocean and the physics behind it, uh, the biology, the chemistry. It all it all comes together as the one thing we call oceanography. And it's uh, it's kind of weird when you think about everything you have to know and keep up with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a broad field. And as I always say, zip ties <laughs> and duct tape hold science together. So Mason, what got you interested in the water? Like, tell us a little bit about where you came from and what drew you to the oceans or the lakes or whatnot.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess for me, um, I was born and raised in Daytona Beach, Florida. So I'm a Florida native. And being from a beach town, uh, my parents moved there in the late 80s and they were attracted to the area and they always had small boats and so they would always tell me even from the time that i was in a crib they would bring a little portable crib out on their boat on the weekends and they'd take me out to uh we called it a disappearing island which it was just a sandbar um that grew in popularity over the years and it was just kind of like a hangout spot for people to go and anchor up their boats and you know have fun on the weekends so uh obviously because of that, I grew up around the water, on the water, um, kind of gained an appreciation for it, kind of at a surface level, no pun intended, but um, my grandparents also uh, lived on a sailboat um, after they retired and they took their sailboat from Michigan through the St. Saint Lawrence, Saint Lawrence Canal, sailed it all the way down to Florida. I believe they made it all the way to Fiji at one point. So there was a point in time where um, I would hang out with them on their sailboat and do some sailing as a kid, too. So I guess yeah. that, that's
2: kind of what drew me to the water.
0: How about you, Owen? What would you say drew you to the water? What was your path to the water?
2: It was I was born in the Bahamas. And, you know, you're, it's an island, it's a small island, and it's just a beautiful ocean. And so it was just sheer beauty at first. And one thing I've always struggled with was like, you know, they say if you really find something beautiful just as it is, you really shouldn't study it um but like the stars like you like the stars don't learn what they're about because then there won't won't be any magic to it anymore um but i just found that there was so much with the ocean as i learned more and more about it and it took forever to figure out what exactly i wanted to study but there was so much about it that i could still preserve the magic while focusing on something within the ocean that keeps me close to it so yeah it was a beauty and ignorance at first but now it's kind of morphed into something more real
1: That's so cool. Yeah. I, it sounds like both of you kind of grew up around the ocean, um, and that like influenced your getting into the water and stuff, um, which is super cool. I, I love those stories of just like growing up and like being fascinated with that environment. What made you excited about mud? (laughs) Why mud?
3: Um, well, I guess for me, I mean, it was totally by chance, to be honest with you in undergrad i actually studied the behavioral ecology of american alligators in urbanized settings so i i i graduated graduated with a bachelor's in biology I, I you know obviously i had exposure to chemistry through coursework and stuff like that but um yeah that that was a great experience as well that was pretty much my only research experience prior to grad school um But yeah, like I said, it was totally by chance for me once I realized I wanted to go to grad school and that was the right choice for me. I I don't know how common this is, but I basically sent out a mass email, essentially, you know, to several different professors at several different schools that interest me. And and I I was kind of interested in just about everything. There wasn't one particular field of study that I wanted to get into. Um, And Jordan, Dr. Jordan Beckler, my advisor and now um was the only one to respond to my email so it just kind of snowballed from there and now here i am so
0: yeah. that's awesome yeah, yeah. i didn't oh, know yeah. you studied alligators
3: yeah yeah that was that was a lot of fun it, it mostly consisted of like nocturnal surveys on the saint john's river in the urbanized tributaries in jacksonville florida
1: Sydney, i feel like you need to tell the story of the first time you went diving in lake denton <laughs> oh my god okay <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh yeah so I was with Haley doing our checkout dive and um our DSO Jimmy who we all know um he was like there's no alligators in here don't worry about it there's just some like softshell turtles and whatnot and some fish and Haley was terrified of alligators the whole time even though he kept saying there wouldn't be alligators there wouldn't be alligators so we had to go do like a just like swim out like 50 feet and turn around and come back. Just like a little navigation test and using our compass. And we're, we're buddies, Haley and I. So we were swimming along. It's like five foot viz. And she's like grabbing my arm the entire time. And then like a turtle swims by and she's like, grabs my entire body and uses me as a shield. Like she did when we went (laughs) shopping. And I'm like, I'm looking at her and I'm like, what? I'm like, we're just in a, a little lake and it's just sandy bottom. I'm like, what are you freaking out about? And she's just like, looking around and making like gator uh yeah. hand yeah. signals. And I was like, you are fine. But the whole time she was like, grabbing so tight on my arm. And I was like, Haley, we are okay. It's just a soft shell turtle.
1: Every time we came up to like a a platform where the classes were being held or whatever, you know, like I would look underneath the platform, but. <laughs> <Ugh. laughs> There is gonna be an alligator in here, and it's gonna get me. <laughs> cool. Um, okay. Oh, and what got you into mud? Did you answer that question?
2: I was I was really interested in the chemistry, um, in the biogeochemistry, and to me, I think mud is just like it's a hot spot of biogeochemistry. Um, there's a lot of intense nutrient cycling going on there, and. Really, I think I was, I was thinking about my feelings uh, on mud uh, a couple minutes ago, and I think I really don't like it. Um, I just like it makes me really mad. It's, it gets all over the place, and I just want it to be nowhere in the world. Um, so it's my job to make sure mucks don't build up because, you know, muds are usually indicative of a eutrophic environment. Um, so they're not good typically, but um, yeah, so I, I, I kind of know thy enemy.
1: So we're going to have a segment on this episode called explain that jargon. And every time we come up to that, Owen gets to explain one of the words he just said. <laughs> <laughs> so first is biogeochemical. What What's that one, Owen?
2: Go ahead. So bio- let's just break it down. So if you have biology, so you're it's implying some type of organism that's mediating something. You have geo, which is like earth, and then you have uh, chemistry. Uh, so... It's really looking at the mix between chemistry and, and biological cycling um, is how I would is how I would describe it. And you know, a lot of the chemistry uh, comes down to Earth, things that originate in Earth. I always just say it's the chemical interactions between the living and non living
3: portions of an ecosystem. Essentially, is is what that is. Uh, everything's made up of elements. Life, living things, are generally carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus. Those things also exist in the earth, and they kind of cycle between between each other, and how that happens on different scales is basically what biogeochemistry is.
1: Okay, next question. What is eutrophication? You just said that, so what does that mean?
2: Yeah, so I don't know. There's been like this kind of feeling going around our lab recently that we don't really like saying that word. It's a very loaded word. Uh, eutrophic, it really just means, uh, well, it's really referred to normally as eutrophication. It's like the action of doing something. It has to tell things happening. And it's basically things getting more and more polluted, nutrients. Um, and when envir- when aquatic environments and environments in general go from a state of being naturally cycling, healthy, you don't really, not bad things associated to a state of, because of human input or some other reason, you start to favor like harmful conditions for the biology and people around it.
3: It's essentially an imbalance in, in the ecosystem on a chemical level. It's, it's higher in nutrients, nutrients, which feed primary productivity. So generally you have an imbalance there. There's more algae that grow in the water column more plankton and things. And that can kind of offset the natural balance of how things function in the ecosystem.
0: Cool. Great, thanks Thanks. guys. Okay, Owen, so you said you're a master's student and will you explain to us a little bit more specifically what you do and what are your jobs um, and maybe some projects that you're working on right now?
2: Yeah, so uh, as a master's student, um, you know, I'm a graduate research assistant as that's how I get paid. And so for my thesis project, which is my main project, I am looking at Lake Okeechobee and nutrient cycling. Uh, one of the, when we look at these environments and, you know, we spoke about eutrophication, um, you can, there's usually like certain main contributors to eutrophication in different areas. Um, and in, in, in the South Florida environment and the coastal region and inland region, it's usually nitrogen. So I'm studying nitrogen cycling in Lake Okeechobee to develop a better understanding of how nitrogen is brought to the environment and how it cycles and is available for, uh, algae to grow. Um, But I oversee a couple other projects. I recently actually just uh, led a project off the coast looking at how uh, uh, turbidity. So when we have intense rainfall, you know, extreme events like hurricanes out of the St. Lucie Inlet, which is the northern extent of the South Florida uh, Barrier Reef. So whenever there's a hurricane, you have this intense uh, runoff and it creates really turbid and light limiting con- conditions. So you have a lot of turbid means sediments in the water. So that's where I come in. Um, and there was a group, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. They were interested in um, how that's affecting corals. So they I, I helped them develop some new methods for testing turbidity and sediment in the water column. Um, that project just finished up. I lead a project looking at mercury pollution in the Indian River Lagoon. Yeah, so they they kind of and a couple more I'm probably forgetting, but it, you get you get that it's it's like looking at different environments. Um and
1: that's yeah. insane. So, okay, can you break it down and explain it to me like I'm five? Like your yes. thesis? Can you tell me like a one sentence like?
2: Yeah, uh, I think I could try to do that. <laughs> so if if relating directly to my thesis I'm really interested in how long nitrogen stays in the environment so you have these inputs with hurricanes and I want I'm studying the things because nitrogen naturally goes to a gas and when it's a gas nothing can really take it up so I study how long it's not a gas that's one smart five-year-old
3: that is yeah
2: Yeah, exactly. So what are gonna what's gonna regulate that in the environment? How long is it there for for algae to grow on it?
1: Interesting. Okay.
3: Yeah. How about
0: you, Mason? Explain to us your job and any projects that you're working on right now.
3: Right now, most of what I do on a day-to-day basis is a lot of bookwork, a lot of reading papers, a lot of writing papers, um, as I'm trying to finish up my thesis project not as active in the lab or the field as I was in the past couple of years. Um, But yeah, just like Owen, I also kind of lead my own set of projects uh, outside of my own thesis. Um, uh, Initially, when I started working for Jordan, I was hired as a technician to uh, maintain, deploy, and operate um, our Benthic lander, which is a really neat piece of technology that we use. It's a really powerful tool that sediment geochemists such as ourselves use to study um, the chemistry in the environment. So that was uh, a state funded project, uh, $2.5 million grant um, to basically monitor the toxic algae blooms in Lake Okeechobee. Uh, It was multidisciplinary. We had lots of other PIs at Harbor Branch involved. biologists, modelers, all, all sorts of walks of life were involved in this project. And, and the goal was really to just sort of be able to pinpoint the triggers of these toxic algae blooms that plague Lake Okeechobee every year. It's a really big problem in the state. It cost the state hundreds of millions of dollars. There was at one point it was so bad that the governor declared a state of emergency. Um, Anyway, that's kind of going on. Uh, down a rabbit hole there. But anyway, that that was the first project that I worked on. Um, It's a great experience. And then I've also led other projects in the Indian River Lagoon, Um, the C-44 Canal or the St. Lucie Canal, which is essentially the main body of water that connects Lake Okeechobee to the Indian River Lagoon estuary. Kind of looking at transformations of water quality from the lake to the lagoon. So that's, that's kind of what I do. And as far as my thesis, uh, if I could explain it to a five-year-old, um, my study site is in South Florida by the Keys. It's a body of water called Florida Bay, which is basically the estuary north of the Keys and south of the Everglades in the mainland. And essentially, I'm looking at um, how this toxic stuff that's naturally produced in the sediment can be naturally removed by minerals, um, such as iron, and how that natural process occurs uh, in different spots in the Bay, as well as in different times of the year. So there's implications for seagrass health, really, is what it comes down to. Um, They've had some extremely large seagrass die-offs in Florida Bay in the past few decades, and some of that has been linked to this toxic substance that's produced in the sediments naturally. Uh, It's called sulfide, hydrogen sulfide. Maybe you've smelled it, it's like that rotten egg smell by the mangroves at low tide, like when you go to the beach and there's tons of sargassum all over the place rotting. Um, That's sulfide and it's produced naturally in sediments. It's toxic to pretty much most living things and iron is capable of removing it naturally from the system. Um, So I'm kind of looking at how that happens.
1: That's super cool. That actually breaks down your work for me a lot better. Maybe I'm five, but I <laughs> I appreciated that.
0: I have a question for any of the three of you, since I know y- your work all kind of links to Lake Okeechobee. But what is Lake Okeechobee and why is it so important?
2: I'll let Owen. Uh, so Lake Okeechobee is the largest lake in Florida. It's the, I think the second largest lake in contiguous uh, the United States. It's 1,730 kilometers squared. So yeah, it's the largest lake. And it's, it struggles because we have changed it in such a way that's different from the his, his, how it was historically. We built walls around the lake. They're called dikes. And we also turned the entire floodplains north and south of the lake into these little canals that funnels all the water. And we also funnel, We facilitate The water that normally flows south towards the Florida Bay, where Mason studies, we send it all back towards Lake Okeechobee, and then we send it east and west out of the St. Lucie estuary and out of the Caloosahatchee estuary, which is on the west side. Um, And so what that, all this has caused all the change in Lake Okeechobee, it's now caused a persistent and increasing frequency of harmful algal blooms. And there's two major uh, reasons harmful algal blooms are bad, kind of across the board. Um, These are the two reasons. It's because they lower oxygen uh, and they're usually associated with toxins. So even if they don't have if it's not a toxic bloom, because it's so much algae at one time, whenever they die and decompose, they consume a lot of all the oxygen gets depleted from the water. It can get depleted. And so people are, a lot of people are concerned nowadays about uh, sending that water east and west uh, to the St. Lucie and Clue estuary, because then you get all this polluted, not really necessarily toxic, but polluted water that can then cause algal blooms in those estuaries, which naturally, you know, they were probably resilient and didn't really get them as bad. Um, So Lake Okeechobee has all this mud all over the bottom. You know, we study mud. I talk about this a lot. It's my natural enemy. Um, And... Lake Okeechobee, what's one of my favorite facts to say about Lake Okeechobee is that nowadays it has uh like 50% of the bottom of it's covered by mud and it's all in the center because it's kind of just gets focused there from the gyres in the lake. um, And if you look at the sediment record, they think that about 200 years ago, as close as then, it was a completely sand, sand bottom lake, so um they can look like look that's what they've said and it's kind of crazy to me going out there and working there now because I can never imagine it as being sandy bottom
3: just anecdotally too there was a funny story there, there was one day we were doing field work out on Lake Okeechobee and the locals out there they're they're un, they're they're unique um it, it's r- rural Florida and so um anyway we we were pulling the boat out of the water at the boat ramp and this elderly gentleman in an old beat up rusty pickup truck pulls up next to us by the boat ramp and just kind of stood there and looked at us kind of wondering what we were doing with the big research sticker and um he's like what what are y'all researching out here on the lake and we you know we just tell him water quality you know whatnot and he started going on about how he was born in Okeechobee Florida in the 1940s and he lived there his whole life and his father was a commercial cat fisherman on lake okeechobee and uh he said that his dad would actually bring like a cup with him out fishing and drink water straight out of the lake that's how clean it was at one point in time so and then he followed that up by saying modernization is a killer and and then that that was it and they thanked us for what we were doing i just thought that was a funny story and to, to think about what he's seen over six decades the changes that that lake has yeah
1: had. Well, Mason, you bring up a really good point about, like, we've talked before about the shifting baseline effect um, on this podcast. And I think we've also kind of touched on the importance of local knowledge. Um, And I think what you said kind of touched on both of those things, which um, I, I think it's just really important for people in general, but also scientists to be listening to and engaging with the community on those topics. So like, that's a really awesome experience that you got to have talking to that person. Mm Um, and also like really important for him to share that story with you to make us the young scientists realize what once was and like what we, what we had. Right. Um, so I, I think that's super cool. Um, and just a good way for you to like engage with the community about your science and your research so
3: yeah definitely every time we we were down there we'd have some local boat of fishermen ask what we're doing they were always super appreciate appreciated to see us there because that's their quote their lake right like that's what they do all the time they're fishing in that lake they use it for their livelihoods apparently which I didn't know commercial fishing was that big on Lake Okeechobee but apparently it is I mean (laughs) yeah I don't know who's eating that fish but It certainly isn't me.
2: As scientists, I like kind of how I like to say we do the work is like 30% in the field and then like 70% in the lab, you know, and it's our job to come up with stories from the data that we get objectively and they should be accurate, but there's still stories nonetheless that you can get heavily biased by. Um, And one thing that's different though, is that you have people out there whose job is like 80%, 100% of the time on out in the field so they really do know what's going on they have full exposure uh i you know they could tell you and i i trust it so much like i mean you have to always use it with a grain of salt but it's really the anecdotal evidence is just so worth it yeah and one of the crazy things now that you mention it uh we were out there the other day actually just in a marina at lake Okeechobee, collecting some mud and we got we saw these fishermen come back and they had like a haul of like 6,000 or no, I think that day they have, they had a thousand pounds of, of fish. Um, and normally I think that they said their average pull is like 5,000 pounds a day. And it's just funny to see them out there because, you know, you have these toxins in the water, like right, right now, but in the merino where we were that had a really toxic bloom, um, there was like a sustenance fisher um and it's crazy because he's fishing into this like algal bloom like where we were it was so intense i would never imagine eating those fish
0: i have a follow-up question we kept talking about how none of us would eat the fish out of lake oh uh can you guys explain a little bit why that is
3: um well i mean it starts with the, the algae bloom problem right if these algae are producing toxins and they're the base of the food chain that these toxins eventually work their way up to fish that people catch and eat. And I'm not exactly sure how these toxins sort of persist in the environment, but also in the tissues of fish. But I'm assuming there is some sort of accumulation and eventually that toxin can be transferred to people and ultimately consumed by a, a person. And these toxins are liver toxins, carcinogens, um, they're, they're no good.
2: So. Also, also, when you look at these eutrophic environments, you know, we we talk a lot about productivity and algae uh, that's, in, that's associated with, with like human inputs, like from farm and agriculture, maybe. But, you know, that's just what you can see. Like when we study nitrogen and phosphorus and, you know, we say, Oh, this is affecting the productivity or the algae blooms. That's just what we can see, like the development of the mucks. But, just, humans are also associated with all these other contaminants in the environment. So if you see that a system which you have evidence was a lot different a long time ago, is now has all this direct human impact, you can probably assume there's a, a slew of other toxic chemicals that we just aren't monitoring in our lab out there. I would say that the eutrophic status of Lake Okeechobee from a nutrient and algal sense is just kind of like a, a marker. It's like, we gotta we got to regulate it. It's bad right now
3: it's complicated, right? It's not just like treating the backyard pool. You don't just dump a bunch of chemicals in it and it fixes the problem. This is a huge open system, super complex, super dynamic, so much chemistry going on. Um, So much physics going on. No, I think I read something at one point where if if we turned off the tap, metaphorically speaking for nutrients entering the lake, it would still take a hundred years for the lake to revert back to its natural state on its own. With no human intervention um which that's
0: insane I'm,
3: i mean to put it bluntly that's never going to happen i mean it's, the pollution is mm-hmm. going to continue continue to happen so it's really about i think harm reduction mitigation and really uh innovative technology solutions that that can sort of take the problem and manipulate it in a way that uh not necessarily puts a band-Aid on the situation but sort of facilitates the long-term um healing of of the system if if yeah. that makes sense um and and then even maybe uh, profiting off of it and benefiting society in that sense for example harvesting these algae blooms and turning them into plastics or biofuels you know and sort of, taking this what was once a problem and turning it into something useful um yeah
0: i was gonna really... say hopefully like the solutions and i don't know running into the into these problems uh like oh hopefully we can learn something from them come up with solutions and apply those solutions or that new knowledge to other systems so that it doesn't happen elsewhere
2: yeah Currently the coolest thing we have going on in our lab for example is in these mucky muddy sediments Um, one thing people have been trying to do is turn them into uh, batteries, fuel cells, essentially. Um, and our intern, we have an intern that comes by every summer and that's what he's working on. And, you know, we generate electricity from the mud. It's all about the energy density. Um, and so we generate pretty substantial energy, but it's not there yet. But that's just one of the really cool applications. And in the process of generating energy, we actually are making the mud better by taking out some of the old nutrients. It's uh, it's really cool.
0: So uh, talking about how gross Lake O is, have you guys been diving in Lake Okeechobee? Do you do that Absolutely for work? Absolutely not.
3: No, no. We, we had some uh, technical divers that we contracted to collect sediment cores for us. These guys are insane. Not only is it alligator infested, but it's toxic and visibility is zero. I mean, if you go not even 50 centimeters deep and it's pitch black, I mean, it's it's pretty bad. But these guys were in dry suits in July in 85 degree water. I mean, you know, that's kind of Wow, what, what they were working with very brave though I mean we can't thank them enough because we have a whole year's worth of data because of these guys, you know,
1: yeah. Uh, oh yeah. my gosh. That's a- so you guys don't really dive for your work sometimes diving is used for your work, but do you guys dive anyway.
3: um not as much as I would like, at least not for fun. um. I would like to go more. Obviously, as you know, Haley, we have a lot of great, easily accessible dives in South Florida, which is great. Um, Blue Heron Bridge, as I know you're very familiar with. That's that's where I did some of
2: my training with you.
1: Owen, oh, what about you? Do you uh, dive for work or for fun? Uh,
2: me, I like to dive, but I don't get a whole lot of opportunities. I'm pretty busy. Uh, I have my certification. Um,
0: did you dive at all when you were growing up in the Bahamas?
2: Um, No, that was mostly, I got my diving certification at 13, and that was when I was already in the States, um, and mostly in the Bahamas, I just snorkeled. Like, I'm a really good snorkeler. I can probably hit, like, 45 feet comfortably. Yeah, and that the, the way that a I... little
1: bit, like, tell us a little bit about your snorkeling. I know you did a little bit of snorkeling for sediment sampling in Florida yeah. Bay, right? Tell us a little bit about that. So how does how does snorkeling maybe interact with your work if diving doesn't?
2: Yeah, so we work in a lot of shallow coastal systems. And one thing about the Florida Bay is that it's mostly shallow, like the average depth is probably not more than six feet. Um, And I did a lot of snorkeling to get cores out there for our last time. We went out in September. Um, It was really fun uh i think the the only part i didn't like was doing it in these things called calls. so i lie are these saltwater lakes that lie at the interface of the everglades and uh the florida bay and the one thing i don't like about them is that they have the mixture of all the fun things in the world that you could possibly imagine they have well they have sharks crocodiles and alligators um and i'm really terrified of the latter two crocodiles and alligators are like just the scariest thing um but i got it done you know what we do is we'll go down with a sediment core we'll push it into the mud and then you can put a a top over it and that basically will facilitate a vacuum that you can cover with your finger and pull it out and then you could put a uh, uh, you could put a cap over the bottom and then you basically have a vertically preserved uh section of the sediment from that area you're interested in. So uh, the vertical preservation is super important for the work we do. It allows us to make inferences on how uh, how the sediments are really interacting with the water column. So you can go out there and just grab like a handful of mud and, t- and just get like an average like what's kind of going on. But when you collect it and you can preserve the structure and the layering, you can really get at what's happening or what time frame and yeah
1: super cool um Owen what is the best or craziest field story that you can think of off the top of your head
2: the best or craziest field story oh yes uh, so <laughs> <laughs> well we were on Lake Okeechobee like it's called it was a comp- comprehensive survey and it basically lasts from like 7 a.m in the morning till like midnight and so we were out on Lake Okeechobee and it was this was during daylight savings time too so you know sun's down at like 6 p.m i think and we're just out there in pitch black darkness and this is like an ocean Lake Okeechobee so i tried to emphasize this earlier but it's 1700 square kilometers and when (laughs) america and when you're out there when you're when you're out there, there's like there's there's uh macrophytes like trees that are just submerged in ten feet of water for whatever reason. There's these structure, there's still structure out there, but you can't see land. It gets pitch black, there's no light pollution and so we're out there. And all we have is the bow light of the dusky. So what I had to do to for Mason to navigate the boat was I had to stand in the porthole that that at the on the bow. I had to stand there with a, with a with a, a strobe light and point it forward as like getting hit in the face with all these bugs and it's just like pitch black and we're all so scared because like he's going forty five miles per hour on Lake Okeechobee, you know, in pitch black darkness and. You know, luckily waves weren't too choppy, but if I didn't say the story that Mason was thinking of, then uh let's hear about that one.
3: Best pair of headlights I've ever had, this one right here, this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, oh, I was I was I was thinking of the time we were at sea in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh yeah. This was uh this was one of the wildest experiences of my life by far. Um we were at sea aboard the RV Savannah for 20 days roughly, and this was uh April of 2022 so last year and um I I guess the Gulf is pretty active that time of year as far as like weather and seas go and so most of the time we were at sea we were in I I mean at one point I got to eight to ten foot swells and we're a hundred miles offshore it it was pretty intense and there was one night um I mean and we're working long hours on the ship um 16 18 hour days sometimes And there was one night uh, I finished up all the work I had to do, um, and Owen was like the last man standing, right? He was the last one up doing his lab work. And so there's a whole lab in this ship that that we set up all of our equipment in. And
2: it was one of those really rough nights, and I went to bed. It's a ship on keels, or no, it's a lab on keels. I said, it's like a lab on wheels, but lab on keels. Okay, cool. Thank you. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. anyway um
3: and i went to bed i went to my bunk and it, this was at like i don't know one in the morning and then all of a sudden next thing i know i'm being woken up by owen and he's like mason mason get up something just happened and i was like well what you know i'm all disoriented oh. then i roll out of my bunk go upstairs to the uh the main deck and there's just stuff everywhere like expensive lab equipment just all over the deck of the ship and like bottles and tube racks and pipette tips and like all this junk just spread all over the deck of this ship and we're still pitching and rolling you know like 10 15 degrees and um and like three more of the crew members came up because it was a loud crash i apparently slept through it but it was just a mess and then yeah uh, we all just kind of stood there and stared at it, stared back at each other, and we, we didn't really know what to do. And I was like, I got to go back to being horizontal before I get seasick. Like I couldn't stand and help, unfortunately. But that was probably for me the one of the craziest. Experiences. Can I can I
2: add to it? So I like like Mason said, I was like the last one awake, and it was I can't believe I forgot about this, but it was two or three a.m. Uh, I was just doing analysis and I was talking to one of the crew members, just like just chilling. And we're talking about life, about concerts. We're actually talking about the weekend at the time, the singer. Uh, And then he goes down into the engine room and I'm just chilling up there doing my analysis. Ten minutes later, all we do, all I see is bang, we slide to the left. I had to have been at least 20 degrees uh, in terms of the angle of the ship and Everything like we had all these things in the walls, all these instruments fall over and I had no clue how to like, you know, on, a, on, on the ship, I only have a certain few jobs. And so I don't know all of what's going on. So all these instruments fall over. I have no clue what to do about them. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, my gosh, that crew member just went into the engine room. That's an ex- that's an open engine. So if we got hit by that wave, like he could have fallen, like he was going to go check on the engine in the engine room. He was fine, luckily. But like I guess maybe like the center of gravity is just lower it's lower down there so maybe he was completely fine but I had to go downstairs wake everyone up slap Mason up slap people up but I felt bad about it but I didn't know what to do because everything was everywhere and then the next day it only got worse we were in like this is when we could see things so this was just like a rogue wave out of nowhere uh, the next day we could actually see how bad it was. It was like 14 to 15 foot swell, um, 14 to 16 foot swell. And Mason has these cool videos where basically you just hold the phone horizontal and you're looking out at the horizon. And then the next second, the horizon is a wave and it's just like, whoa um and oh the, it gosh. was actually it was actually so bad that we had to recover our benthic lander which we had spoken about beforehand using the uh the a-frame in the back of the boat and that's basically like a da- uh, fancy davit and winch um and so you have this line and it has it can only take a certain amount of tension normally when you recover uh the, when we recover the lander we want to go into waves uh, bow to stern it put, um that's just because you don't want, you never want to get hit by a wave on your broadside uh and but the way but these were so bad that we had to force ourselves to get into the trough of the wave to get hit broadside because if we were to try to lift up our lander with the a-frame in uh going bow to stern the tension from the the tension on the line would, would could potentially cause it to snap so not only were they 14 to 16 foot waves and a ship that's rated for like six feet Uh, we were out. We were getting slammed broadside, and the whole time, like most of the time, we could help recover the benthic lander, like the students and stuff. But the crew members were like, "Stand aside!" But like, we need professionals on this. It was wild.
0: Say, I remember you guys telling this story when you came back, and yeah, (laughs) so
1: crazy. Yeah. So, what was the most expensive item that fell over in this whole debacle?
2: it was probably uh uh we use this technology called electrochemical profiling um it basically looks at redox reactions it's type of chem- chemistry in the sediments <laughs> and it's this long top heavy uh we have this long top heavy micro manipulator with these uh put- these things called potentiostats that are like $14,000 and this whole system it was like it was like a $20,000 instrument just went boom out
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I understood none of that. So I know it's super expensive. <laughs> Question for Mason. Mm-hmm. What kind of things do you envision yourself doing in the future? Or what are some of your goals and aspirations?
3: Um, well, once I finish my master's program, uh, PhD is definitely on the horizon. It just makes the most sense for me. Definitely want to remain in research, but I think it'll be more so in the private sector of research and not okay. academia. Um, I'm in kind of a unique position with my advisor right now where he has this startup company that develops special technology um, to essentially monitor sediments that can be used by different regulatory agencies, uh, governments, other private environmental consulting firms, stuff like that. So, um, And so I'll most likely continue on and and work for his company, at least in the short term, once I graduate and kind of help get this startup off the ground, um, you know, which involves a lot of networking, a lot of market research, um, a lot of proposing for funding, for seed funding to to help get the project going. Um, but I mean, long term, I'm I'm pretty easygoing person, so I don't really have a super hard. This is what I'm going to be doing, and this is what I want to do at this point in time. You know, I know I love the science and I love the chemistry work that we do. So, whatever it is, it'll be something within that realm. But I think um, definitely working either for or leading some private firm that is involved in either environmental consulting or technology development, um, something along those lines. That's awesome. Mm -hmm.
0: And add, uh, doing more dives to that list.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. No doubt.
0: (laughs) I'm excited to uh, hear more about this and hopefully see it in the future. Oh, you will. Fun question time.
3: Yay.
0: So what is one of your passions or hobbies outside of work?
2: Passions and hobbies outside of work. Um, I really like to just have fun. Um, I like to do anything that facilitates fun. I just went to my first music festival. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so I do a bunch of things from diving to fishing, um, snorkeling a lot. Uh, I like to jump off things. Um,
0: parkour, parkour. I
2: soccer. And I play a lot of soccer, so.
0: What uh, kind of music was the music festival?
2: Oh, everything. I saw Paramore. Foo Fighters, um, Peach Pit, Cheryl Crow. Peach Pit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know Peach Pit?
1: Yes.
0: <laughs>
2: oh my god dude I love Peach Pit.
1: Uh, oh god. Mason what do you do in your free time?
3: Um, You know I don't really have a lot of free time these days um, but I mean I've always been an avid surfer that was sort of my sport of choice I guess you could say. Um fishing. Uh I have a a small little skiff that I like to take out to the sandbar here sometimes and just kind of relax with my girlfriend. That that's really it. You know, I don't I don't really do a whole lot outside of my research nowadays at least. You know, I'm not I don't even feel like the same person now than before I started grad school. In a in a good way, but you know, I kind of lost some you get some of that free time back.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's fine.
3: It, I, it's all good.
1: Okay, we heard all about your least favorite marine organisms, uh, crocodiles and alligators. So what are, although Mason, I don't know, you might totally disagree with that, but what are your favorite marine organisms?
3: I guess my favorite marine organism would probably be... Hmm. I kind of want to, I don't know why, but I kind of want to go with... Uh, um, the deep sea tube worms that live on hydrothermal vents yeah riftia. Riftia. Uh, yeah riftia yeah that kind of blows my mind um all their little symbioses and the whole life without sun is is pretty crazy to me so um that, that that's my answer and i'm
2: sticking to it
0: good answer yeah. i'm here for it
2: yeah. and for me i think i'll choose two um and the first one has to be for aesthetics purposes uh probably a bluefin tuna um that's a good one yeah I like tuna they're really strong but I also like octopi um or octopuses uh and that's mostly because they're smart I think that their intelligence is um very attractive uh yeah so I, I think octopuses and tuna
1: finally answers that aren't like coral this is (laughs) we interviewed too many coral researchers (laughs) mason
0: what's on your dive or travel bucket list
3: oh man um you know that that one blue hole uh in belize i think yeah right that's super interesting to me i i think that would be really cool to dive on um But I guess something a little closer to home would be uh, John Pennekamp. I've snorkeled John Pennekamp down in Key Largo, but I've never had a chance to dive there. And I think that would be a really neat place to dive that's close to home and easily accessible.
0: Yeah. Next vacation, next break from your thesis.
2: Yep. Yeah, if I'm gonna answer that question. Diving, I don't really have a, a favorite destination. Definitely, uh, definitely the Amazon, though, is my current top destination. At some place I've looked at doing my PhD. Like, I wanna go, I'm want i going out of the country for my PhD, most likely. Um, and I think the Amazon is just so beautiful. Uh, and there's so much life. So I think that that's my answer. So, yeah. Super
0: cool. Hopefully they don't have crocodiles or alligators in Peru. Ooh, or the Galapagos
2: would be really cool to dive at. Yeah. Our friends are there right now, Ben. And, oh, really? Ben's yeah, in my yeah.
0: Galapagos. The pictures have been crazy. I told them to write in uh, stories for fish tales.
2: Yeah, I'd be. I mean, they're just. They look like they're having the time of their lives. Dude. I d- I didn't even know we could go to the Galapagos. I thought you had to be a big wig to do that.
1: Okay, I don't even know if my Wi-Fi will hold up for this story, but I will say that Allison sent me a picture of a fish the other day. And she said, what is this fish? My dive master said it was a lion fish, but they're dumb and they're wrong. And I said, no, you're right. That's not a lionfish." And I literally sat in bed at like one in the morning, Googling fish until we found the fish that it was. And it was the most satisfying thing on the entire planet. It was called like the dragon wrasse. I don't know if you can Google a picture of those, but it's like super ornate and beautiful. And she found a juvenile dragon wrasse in Uh, the galapagos super cool yeah i told her she she needs to send me picture i was like please just always ask me for a fish id
2: honestly the colorway kind of looks like a pineapple fish
1: so what keeps you coming back to the water owen
2: what keeps me coming back to the water is kind of why what brought me here was the beauty uh it's just I associate it with good times it recharges me uh and I feel like there's always something new to learn
1: Mason what about you
2: yeah I would probably play off of that last part that Owen said and
3: I mean at least from a research standpoint is I mean it sounds cliche but like the thrill of discovery to be honest with you I mean there's so much there's more that's unknown than that is known and there's so much to learn and and just really understanding what the heck's going on out there on a very deep, intimate level, I think is so captivating. And for me, at least that's what keeps me coming back.
0: Yeah, I agree with that one. Mm-hmm. Will you guys tell us where we can follow your work, like your lab Instagram, any of those details?
3: Yeah, uh, so our lab really only has the Instagram. Um, the Instagram is at geochemical.sensing.lab. Um, and we're awesome. fairly active. There's tons of cool reels and some pretty neat content. Um, you could learn a thing or two. I get a little verbose in the captions sometimes. So <laughs> yeah, awesome. there's definitely
2: a lot of recurring motifs there too. So you, uh, you know, it's kind of like as you go through it, you'll kind of pick up. I feel like you'll kind of understand what we're about as you go through it so it's kind of once you once you get invested you know it'll be worth it
0: yeah we'll definitely point everyone to that page so they can learn more about your your mud work
2: thank you so much
1: <laughs> thanks for coming on the podcast
2: yeah thanks
0: guys, yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks, a lot of fun.
1: thanks so much for listening to this week's episode don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fishtails episodes. Those will come out about once a month, and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under
0: tidalteesapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast, and if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well.
1: Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. All right, guys. Uh, you know, if you listen to the end of our episode, you get a fish fact. And this week's is super short and sweet. Um, did you know that most fish don't have eyelids? Um, And there's a couple small exceptions. Um, One of those is sharks, which are cartilaginous fish, and they have special eyelids that help to um, protect their eyes, and they oftentimes will close them right as they're going in for an attack. Um, So yeah, interesting facts. Sharks have eyelids, but most fish don't.
0: You mean to tell me that when I wink at fish underwater, they don't wink back? They're probably winking back in their heart. Okay. It's a, it's a thought that counts.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode. See you next week. A mud
0: haiku and it needs to be on our outro
1: a mud haiku sticky muck yuck <laughs> smells like sulfur it's not a haiku but there you go yay <laughs>